0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a story I just can't get out of my head. It comes from a 30-year law enforcement officer. He lives in Denver. His name is Matthew Horace. He's retired now, but worked in departments across the country, including two years as a high-ranking federal agent here. And what he told me that I just can't shake is about the choice he felt he had to make when he was off duty. To understand, you need to know that Matthew Horace is African American. He says, imagine he was shopping in the suburbs and
1: saw someone committing a crime. If I'm down in Lone Tree and I'm at the mall and something happens, I am not drawing my gun and running after somebody. Because I believe, and I don't care what anybody tells me, I believe that if I am running down the street dressed like this with a gun in my hand, yelling, federal agent, don't move. If police officers respond to what they see, right, and I'm chasing someone, whether they're black or whether they're white, I believe I will be shot. So that changes how we act when we're not in uniform and we're not in official capacity. Oh, my God.
0: That's that was hard for me to hear. But the harder story is the Omar Edwards story. Omar Edwards, the black officer in Harlem, who in 2009 was mistaken for a criminal and shot by a fellow cop. Edwards was in
1: plain clothes and chasing a man who was breaking into his car. He was doing exactly what I just explained to you. So most of us who are, and we, these are things we joke about privately, but they're not funny. And we're like, hey, I'm not responding. I'm calling 911. Well, by doing that, you might cost someone else their life. But this is the reality of being black and blue.
0: The Black and the Blue is the title of Matthew Horace's new book, A Cop Reveals the Crimes, Racism, and Injustice in America's Law Enforcement. It's based on interviews and case studies nationwide. I asked Horace
1: more about being black and blue. There is a conflict because the community sometimes, and certain members of the community don't trust you by virtue of the badge you wear. Of the blue. Of the blue, right? And then in environments where we have not been represented in police departments and organizations, then we're not trusted in those organizations, and the numbers are so small that you sometimes become targets in those types of environments as well. So it's a balancing act. And it's a 24 hour a day balance. So it's balancing the relationship with the community and balancing
0: the relationship with your fellow officers. Exactly. Are police departments.
1: Inherently racist places. Well, I think if you look at the history of policing in the United States, and because law enforcement by and large has been used to enforce segregation, law enforcement has evolved to be one of those things that we are the fixers of everything in communities. And in communities of color or other communities where crime rates are high, some of the policies that are enacted that we enforce are inherently racist. Like what? Well, look at what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, for instance. While the nation was riveted and focused on Michael Brown and the death of Michael Brown at the hands of Darren Wilson, the issue was much broader and much deeper than that one incident. Michael Brown was sort of like just on the edge of why people were upset. In that community, you had this Synchronized system of finding and tickets that people just got to the point. It was a boiling point. And in doing the research for the book, we learned that there was conspiracy involved between the city manager, the finance director, the judges, the police chief, the courts, the prosecutors, just to fine and harass uh, people of color in that community. Incredibly disproportionate. Incredibly. And the numbers don't lie. The numbers don't lie. So while people do get upset and a lot of our community gets upset at the acts of individual officers, this is a system that's been in place that needs to be um, reformed at all levels. You have a lot of compassion for your fellow
0: officers, you know, what they're asked to do every day in communities that struggle with deep-seated problems, mental illness, addiction, poverty. But you also write, we welcome men and women into law enforcement who should never be there. I've worked with men and women we all knew were ticking time bombs waiting to explode. I'm not asking you to name names, but give me an example of what you saw.
1: Well, one example was um, when I was out on surveillance with a white colleague and I was driving, he was a passenger, and some uh, young men almost hit us in a vehicle. And, you know, we came within probably seconds of having a motor vehicle accident. But in that moment, in the spur of that moment, and we were just having a, a casual drive. We weren't in the middle of some intense undercover operation. We hadn't just arrested anyone. In that moment, with all that calm, my colleague yells the N-word out at the individuals in the vehicle. So these are the types of things that happen in surveillance vehicles, in squad rooms, in offices. And when you speak to African-American police officers and federal agents, by the way, there's not one that I've ever spoken to that hasn't had a similar situation with a colleague in the work environment. So the challenge is every time one of these shootings happens, the police line up on one line and say, this shooting wasn't because of racism. And it very well may not have been because of racism. But then the public comes forward and says, this is yet another incident of racist cops, right? So then African-American cops, we see it for what it is, each individual incident and judging it individually. But we also know what we have to deal with internally with some of our colleagues.
0: I mean, this is fascinating. What did that officer say to you after he yelled out
1: the N-word? He said, oops. So he said, oops, as if it were a mistake. Well, it was a mistake because I was there. I did file a complaint with the Bureau. And I think somewhere along the way, he might have gotten either a week or two weeks off as a discipline. Was he a ticking time bomb? Well, I think anyone that's in that environment of trust and authority that can respond in that way, that quickly for something so simple, they may be a ticking time bomb. So what's the best approach you've seen to screening out folks
0: who, as you say, should never be there?
1: Well, I know in in, in writing the book, we spent a lot of time with Chief Michael Harrison in New Orleans, and he had some incredible challenges in managing what was a deplorable situation with the New Orleans Police Department. I think he's since moved on. He went to to Baltimore. Baltimore, He's the chief superintendent and commissioner in Baltimore now. One of the things he did in in New Orleans was he started an accountability program where officers who did not communicate what they were seeing based, you know, with other officers' behavior, they were held as accountable as the officer's behavior. So, you know, when an officer commits a... with the idea of there's a responsibility to tell. Yes, we have a responsibility to tell what we see when we're working. And if you don't tell, and we find out about it through some other way, and we come back and ask you, did you see this? And you say, yes, you're going to be held responsible because you didn't bring it forward. It's holding the community of police officers responsible. Absolutely. And, and he also said they started some wellness. You know, in law enforcement, in many circles, we don't talk about wellness, right? And in corporate environments, wellness is a very big thing. When you see people are having trouble, having problems, having challenges, pull them in, rein them in. Change their assignment if they 're too hot headed if they 're responding in a way that 's not consistent with your values, rein them in, give them something else to do, and find out what 's going on in our profession. We very rarely do that. There are progressive departments out there now that are looking at these things, but he used he used a very good example If you and I come to work and we 're partners, and you know i 'm having a bad time, yeah right it could be domestic, it could be with family, it could be with money. you know i 'm having a bad day, you 're my partner. And we go to a call that's going to present some challenges. Why not you take the lead on the call and have me be the backup? These are little things we can do to protect each other, right, from hurting ourselves because police officers are human. And the job is very, very difficult. People will test you day in and day out, but you're paid to be protectors and guardians. And that's unfortunately some communities see policing as protectors and guardians and some communities see police officers as warriors. You also point to work in Cleveland. What did you find in Cleveland? Well, two cases come to mind in Ohio. The Tamir Rice case, Mm. who was playing with a toy gun in a park and officers, you know, responded to the park. And within minutes, he was dead with a toy gun, a 12 year old kid. Right. But, you know, social science has told us time and time again that when people see African-Americans and particularly African-American kids, they always believe that they're older than they are. So I don't know why that happens. It's sort of one of those inherent implicit biases that we all live with. And then you had the situation in Ohio where the gentleman was in the Walmart and looking at a toy gun, and he wasn't pointing it at anyone or anything, but someone called the police and said, there's a black man in Walmart pointing a gun at people. The police responded, and within minutes, he was dead, but also another person at the Walmart died of a heart attack in the process and watching how this evolved. So there is this thing that we talk about in the book, and and I've seen it over and over and over again, that when that radio call goes out and it says black man with a gun, the police respond very differently than when someone says there's a white man with a gun.
0: You write a lot about implicit bias, a term that really hadn't entered the lexicon when you started in law enforcement. How much do you think those
1: biases can be trained out? It's not a matter of training it out. It's a mattering of, letting you know how you identify your own implicit biases and then reining that into check so that you understand when things kick in to make you think. And I'll give you a for instance. You're in a police car with a partner and you're rolling down the street. And no matter how how much you deplore seeing a kid with their pants hanging down, right, to say something that's racially motivated about it lets everyone know that you have a bias. So if you have a bias, how are you going to be able to walk up to that person and say, Good morning. My name is Officer Horace. How are you doing today? Right. How are you going to be able to do that effectively if you have a bias? Now, it was interesting. I remember when I was in the police department and I'd be in a car with people, you would see someone in the African-American community and, and people would say things like, I don't know why they dress like that or I don't know how they live like that. And then you walk around the corner to another community and you would see a, a white teenager with gothic gear on, and it gets no suspicion from anyone. And if you see seven white teenagers with goth gear on, it gets no suspicion. Even though it may look out of place in an environment, they're not approached the same way. So implicit biases are things we all have, we all live with them, but they have to be trained and they have to be yielded into check. I remember speaking with a Colorado researcher who tests
0: for bias. And I think the the video game he developed was to measure how quickly you might shoot an assailant. Mm. Okay. And uh, if the assailant was white, people were less likely to shoot them quickly. And if they were black, they were far more likely to shoot the assailant and do so quickly. They tested white people on this. They also tested black people. Right, And the same biases that drove the white person to shoot the black person faster – Drove the black people to shoot the black people. faster. Sure. I want to ask if, as a black
1: officer, you noticed your own biases towards other people of color. Sure. Well, not only that, but in, in deference to people's sexuality, I talk in the book about a case that I went out on as a police officer where there was a domestic assault. And I met the gentleman outside of the apartment who was Hispanic and obviously had been assaulted. So he told us that he, he wanted his um, partner out of the house. He was tired of this. He had been hit. And automatically, myself and my partner, who's a female, we assume we're going to go upstairs to talk to a woman. We make that assumption because of our biases. Now we get to the top of the stairs. We walk into the apartment and there's a gentleman sitting in the apartment because all we knew was that the person's name was Leslie, which could be a man or it could be a woman. We get to the apartment, and the individual is sitting on the couch. And much to my surprise, it's a man, number one. So there go my biases out the door. And then we see that the individual is large. He's huge. And we have some dialogue with with Leslie. And we say, Leslie, we need you to stand up and go downstairs with us because your partner is pressing charges X, Y, and Z. And he's saying, I'm not standing up. Well, you know, with noncompliance, now comes escalation of force. At some point in that conversation, Leslie stands up, just like we asked him to. And he's like 6'8 and over 300 pounds. So he's bigger than we both thought. Now he's standing. So I say to him, I'm going to need you to sit back down. And Leslie says, I'm not sitting down. You told me to stand up. And at some point, we have dialogue with him, trying to get the situation calmed down. And at some point in that dialogue, we're assuming things are going to escalate. Why? Because he's huge. Secondly, he's being noncompliant. At some point... He puts his head in his hands. He starts crying. And he just says, I just don't want to leave. I don't want to go to jail. I love him, blah, blah, blah. Well, some officers may have taken that the whole way, the wrong way. And they may have drawn their weapons. And they might have said, I'm not going to tell you again. You need to X, Y, and Z. We were patient. We were measured. And we didn't. Ha- no one got hurt. But our implicit biases could have changed that scenario. I have a great, a great story for you. When I was in Baltimore, we did a book signing in Baltimore. And one of the officers told me a story about... This goes back to hiring and recruitment. He said two young police officers stopped a vehicle, and there were probably five African-American males in the vehicle. And they called for backup because the the vehicle is occupied five times by five black males. Then the officer goes on the air and says the occupants of the vehicle are throwing gang signs. Well, when that happens now, more officers come to the scene because they think they're on to something that may be a little more than what they thought. Well, they get to the scene, and once all is said and done, they find out that all the occupants in the in the vehicle were deaf, right? But think of how the response, and think about what could happen, you know, when people's heart rates are escalated, when our assumptions are drawn, and we think we're dealing with five members of the Crips of the bloods. But now, the question becomes, if it, the vehicle had been occupied by five white males, would the assumption have been, that they were throwing gang signs. There certainly are white gangs, right? But the officer's biases came out on that stop. And this is a sergeant telling the story, and he's talking about the people were hiring and how they think and what their assumptions. Someone could have been killed in that situation, and mistakenly so. And if you don't think it could have happened, look at Fernando Castillo. Fernando Castillo told the officer that he had a firearm. And normally, for me, if you tell me you have a firearm, And my next questions are, where is the firearm? But my heart rate doesn't go up when someone says I have a firearm. Hmm. My heart rate goes up when I see a firearm that no one told me about. The opposite happened in the Philandro Castile case. How do we we get there that that was okay?
0: There's a kind of dualistic view, I think, going on of Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter. But you write, despite claims to the contrary, Black Lives Matter is not anti-cop just as the women's movement is not anti-men or the civil rights movement anti-white. And I'll just note that this line appears in the opening of your book. Why was that
1: important for you to write? Well, I think it was important for people on all sides to understand that we were trying to demonstrate balance. I understand how difficult the job is being a police officer because I've done it. I understand the use of force because I've been involved with use of force incidents. And I also understand being in fear of my life and being scared. On the same token, some of the things that we've seen in some of these uh, video depictions are unacceptable against the law, and they decry anything that we've ever been trained to do. So I want to be able to say from both sides of the fence, this is what we're trained to do, and that's what we're not. I also don't want the public to think for one second, that policing is a profession where people come to work every day just to shoot black people. There's a lot of dynamics that go on, you know, involving these incidents. But there are those officers that are working the streets that are on these jobs. They shouldn't have passed the screening and the recruitment. They shouldn't have passed the hiring, but they did. There are some departments that hire officers even though they've had problems in other departments. You know, if you're an accountant and you work for Merrill Lynch and and you get fired – it's very unlikely that Ernst Jung Young is going to hire you, right? But if you're a police officer and you're involved with five, you know, controversial incidents, there are police departments out here that will hire you. So we need to rethink who we bring into this noble profession. And it is a noble profession. How important is it that a police force... Look like the community it polices. It's extremely important. And most successful organizations have learned that. But equally important Uh is that they hire the right people. And the reason why I say that, we make the case in the book that you can't say every police department that's predominantly black is good, right? Because when you look at Baltimore, Baltimore's police department is 42 percent African-American. But yet Baltimore is under a consent degree. The Philadelphia Police Department has a large minority population. And look what happened at Starbucks with the two gentlemen that got arrested in Starbucks. Chicago police, New York City police, they have diversity, but many of these departments are still under consent. Look at Chicago. The consent, consent decree is like a federal intervention. It's a federal intervention for yeah. departments that can't manage themselves. So that's why we chose the black and the blue versus the black and the white. This is not exclusively a black and white issue. And look at the fact that Baltimore and some other cities have had black police chiefs black city councils, black mayors, black politicians, but yet the police departments have still gone amok and run rogue at times. So you can't just say it's all white officers and all black people. There are some stunning statistics in your book,
0: quoting here, only two out of every 100 homicides in America are ruled justifiable by law enforcement, except when a white person shoots a black person. 16% Sixteen percent were deemed lawful, eight times the general population right what
1: 's going on there? <laughs> Look at what happened in um, New York with the Eric Garner case. Eric Garner was choked to death there 's no other way around it. He was choked to death by police officers who used a tactic that is unlawful. But the Eric Garner case was tried in Staten Island. Staten Island New York is basically home to public service employees in New York City, firemen, policemen. So look at the nature of the jury. In the Walter Scott case of South Carolina, the first case was a hung jury. And you might ask yourself, how could there be a hung jury in a case where someone was shot in the back, running away, and the officer tried to plant evidence that we saw it on video? There is this thing that people believe, they want to believe that their police officers are doing the right thing. They just refuse to believe that anything could have been wrong with what happened until someone they know is involved. Talk to me about the balance of indicting the system, right? Like the
0: system of policing is a problem versus indicting, uh, and I don't mean literally and legally, but individual officers who often in these cases
1: get off relatively scot-free. I think we tried to make the case in the book that as much as people are upset with the officer, what I'd like public to understand and recognize also is that officers don't create their own strategic patrol tactics and and policies. Officers come to work, and they are largely told by sergeants, lieutenants, captains, commanders, and people above them what your priorities should be for a certain area or your certain beat. It even goes deeper than that. In many cases, the chief is told by mayor's city councils what we want to happen. In certain areas. And a good example of that is the case with the officer in New York in the book, where he says, We were told by a councilman's office, make sure that street corner, 125th and Lennox Avenue, is clean. I don't want anybody on that corner because the council people are coming through this afternoon and we want this to be right. When they send edicts like that down, it goes all the way down the train, it goes down to the patrol. It goes down to the precinct and they say, you make sure nobody's on that corner this afternoon between one and five. I don't care what you got to do. You just make sure nobody's out there. The officers are doing what they were told to do. In the case of Ferguson, as we understand it, many officers decried and disagreed with the strategy of finding and ticketing and warning. But the chief was told, this is what you'll do. The officers are told, this is what you'll do. So people tend to focus on what the officer doing mm. and less on the policies of a department or the policies of a, of a government. And they, by and large, make up and guide what officers do. Thank you for
0: being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Matthew Horace of Denver has written The Black and the Blue, A Cop Reveals the Crimes, Racism and Injustice in America's Law Enforcement. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour on CPR News.
2: I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR news. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a
3: little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committees.
0: It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed?
2: Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Mourner. Sexual harassment at the state capitol became a significant issue last session. After numerous accusations and investigations, there were pledges to overhaul the reporting system. Well, later this week, we expect that the long-awaited bill to make changes will be unveiled. CPR's Benta Birkeland broke the story of harassment at the Capitol more than a year ago. She was with KUNC Public Radio at the time, and she has followed it ever since. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. Let's start with the highlights. What are the biggest changes this bill would make to how harassment complaints are handled at the Capitol?
3: Right now, it's impossible to find out how many complaints have been filed against lawmakers and the outcome of any investigations that have happened. And it's not an open record. This proposal would require any credible complaint against a state lawmaker to be automatically released to the public. Immediately? There would be a time frame set up and there would be a summary of the findings. The accuser's name would not be released It would also change how people file complaints against a lawmaker. Right now, it has to go through a legislative leader. This would change that process. Democratic Senator Faith Winter of Westminster will be the main sponsor of the bill. And she was actually the first person to come forward publicly at the Capitol when she accused former Democratic Representative Steve Lebsock of sexual harassment. If you remember, he was ultimately expelled from the legislature. The most important part of this bill is really trying to depoliticize the process as much as possible. And so we create a committee that would oversee the investigation of legislators that have complaints brought against them. They would then determine if that legislator violated the policy. And it's worth noting this committee would also include three outside experts, an HR specialist, a victim's advocate, and an employment attorney.
0: What kind of reception do you expect this bill to get from lawmakers?
3: Certain parts will be controversial. For instance, outside experts having a vote on this committee. That doesn't sit well with Republican Senator Bob Gardner of Colorado Springs. The General Assembly
1: is responsible for disciplining itself. I'm not suggesting to you that the General Assembly has always done that well, but the Constitution vests that in us as a body and in us as members. And we ought to accept that responsibility and be uh, accountable to our constituents.
3: Some of the people who've come forward in the past told me they don't like the committee set up either, but it's for a completely different reason. They don't think lawmakers should be involved at all. Uh, They want it to be an HR person or just outside experts determining any potential punishment.
0: Okay, because there would be some lawmakers on that committee and some outside voices. Uh, You're in touch with a lot of the women who brought complaints against lawmakers last year. Do you know what they think of these proposed changes?
3: Accusers who filed complaints have described the current process as grueling, partisan, uncertain, inconsistent, secretive. And so they really wanted it to change. Some of them are happy that the legislature is going to try to address it. Uh, Former lobbyist Holly Terry filed a complaint against Lubsock. And she thinks this measure would be a positive step forward to try to make it more fair and objective.
4: I think that as much as can be done to create a culture where people feel comfortable coming forward with these complaints, it has been done with this bill. Whether or not the culture will change overnight is still a question, Uh, but I think that a strong policy deters people from behaving badly at work.
0: Are there policies proposed in this bill that could have just like a big impact on the legislature as a whole, Benta?
3: Lots of people work in the Capitol, including hundreds of lobbyists. And this bill includes lobbyists. So if a lobbyist is accused of harassment, they'd be covered under this measure and could potentially face consequences. That's a big change. And it would also create an informal complaint process. So someone would be completely anonymous, but they would have a way to express concerns that maybe don't rise to the level of a formal complaint or maybe they don't want to file a formal complaint. But that may point to a pattern of behavior, and that would be on a lawmaker's file that legislative leaders would be aware of.
0: There's such an interesting power dynamic at the Capitol, Benta. I mean, you've got, you know, powerful lawmakers and then you have interns. Does this address that power imbalance, do you think?
3: I think it's trying to by removing legislative leaders from being a part of every process. Lobbyists and aides and interns They don't want to be retaliated against, and there's that real fear out there. And especially a lot of the younger people at the Capitol, they're there maybe just for a few months to get experience for their resume, to get recommendations. They don't want to rock the boat. The state hired outside consultants to study the culture, and they interviewed 500 people. The vast majority of people, something like 80-some percent, who've experienced harassment never filed a complaint.
0: Oh, my goodness. And there are safeguards in this against retaliation?
3: It tries to beef up those safeguards, yes.
0: Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's public affairs reporter, Benta Birkeland. You can find her reporting on the Capitol's proposed workplace harassment policy at CPR.org. Some feedback now in Loud and Clear. Listener Ken Schreppel thought I should have been more precise in a recent Colorado Wonders segment. We were answering your road-related questions, and I said the average commuter in Metro Denver spends 200 hours a year getting to and from work. No, says Schreppel. That's the average automobile commuter. He says my statement equated commuting with driving. And ignores the 25% of all Denver workers and the 50% of downtown workers who walk, bike, or take transit to work. Denver needs to transition away from automobile dependency because it's fiscally and environmentally unsustainable and inherently anti-urban. So having the media perpetuate this everyone drives mentality isn't helpful and reflects the pro-automobile bias that we have to overcome in order to maintain our quality of life here in Denver. Schreppel is an assistant professor in the College of Architecture and Planning at CU Denver, and he runs the blog Denver Infill, which tracks new development in the city. I asked how he gets to work. I walk to work every day, unless the weather's really bad, uh, and then I'll take the bus. My one mile walk to and from work is a highlight of my day. It's a zero stress commute. I see and interact with people along the way, stop for a coffee appreciate the details of the city up close, and get some exercise. Well, Ken, as someone with an I-25 commute between Central Denver and the Tech Center, you're making me jealous. Keep your feedback and story ideas coming. You can find all the ways to get in touch at cpr.org slash connect. Mm-hmm. Fifty years ago, students at West High School in Denver walked out of classes to protest poor treatment of Chicano students. Riots ensued with police violence and arrests. And a movement began that brought changes even to schools today. CPR's Max Weisick fellow Haley Sanchez reports.
5: I'm at the West High campus in Denver. Students laugh and gather in the hallway. They're talking to each other in a mix of Spanish and English. I'm here to meet Mia Martinez-Lopez, the principal resident in charge of high school at West Early College.
3: On this campus right now, you know, we have three Latinas who are leaders, um, a lot more teachers of color. We do offer Hispanic American lit classes. We have Chicano studies. We encourage, you know, use of language, you know, in Spanish.
5: The scene was far different 50 years ago. In 1969, students were shamed by teachers if they spoke Spanish. Classes didn't cover Chicano history or culture at all. On top of that, a social studies teacher would make racist comments and mispronounce students' names. Students took their concerns to the administration, but nothing was done. They grew frustrated and decided to walk out of class. Martinez Lopez wasn't even born then, but she knows the story well because her father, Emmanuel Martinez, was there.
3: We learned about all of the events of the movement back when we were kids. My dad would tell stories about what happened on that day. He had lots of stories about, you know, specific students and things that he saw.
5: At 21, Martinez was a member of the Crusade for Justice, a Denver group that fought for Chicano rights. It was founded by Denver activist Rudolfo Corky Gonzalez, who coined the term Chicano and had already helped spark a national movement. The group was considered radical by many. Certainly, that's how the FBI saw it. So when they joined student protests, police were ready. On March 20, 1969, a few hundred students left West and demonstrated across the street at Sunken Gardens Park. Martinez was there with other members of the crusade. Students then marched to Baker Junior High, a few blocks away, where Martinez says they rallied more students and headed back to West.
6: By the time we got there, the police were already there in riot gear and with gas masks, the whole thing.
5: Thirty officers ordered demonstrators to leave school grounds and go back to Sunken Gardens. Nita Gonzalez, the daughter of Corky Gonzalez, was 18 at the time. She also participated in the walkout. She says she and some students were at the top of the stairs at the entrance of West when police began pushing everyone back.
4: Students, you know, they started tumbling over and they were grabbing me by my hair and and any, you know, by my shirts and my coats. And and then my dad and the other adults got upset and tried to intervene. And as a result, they were getting beat up as well.
5: News accounts report that fights broke out between officers and demonstrators. Police used mace to stop it. 26 people were arrested, including Martinez, a news photographer, and 11 juveniles. At least two people were hospitalized, including a police officer. Martinez says he was handcuffed in the back of a police van with others and watched several officers struggle to put a teenage girl inside.
6: They, they brought a, a, a girl who was like took about three or four policemen to get her in the, because she was wild.
5: Police then sprayed mace into the patrol wagon from a hole at the top.
6: And it was just like cloudy. And so we're just all struggling and nothing we could do. Our hands are uh, handcuffed. And I tell you, it was a terrible uh, situation. Your eyes are stinging, your skin, everything is just, you know, stinging like crazy. And-
5: but the protest wasn't over. Demonstrators went to the Denver Police Building, City Hall, and Mayor Bill McNichols' office. Gonzalez says the walkout got bigger the next day.
4: Other students walked from other schools. Manuel, Thomas Jefferson, Lincoln, South, all came out and supported the students at West High School.
5: Members from Students for a Democratic Society and the Black Panthers had joined. These groups were also considered extremely radical at the time. Martinez says at least 1,000 people were there.
6: These were people of different races that supported the students and their grievances and and their demands.
5: He says it got so big that it got out of control.
6: Kids were throwing bottles and rocks and everything at the policemen and cars were destroyed.
5: News video at the time shows people bleeding, broken glass and rocks flying, police striking protesters with batons.
6: We try to do things peaceful. We are basically there to What the leadership had to say and their grievances were legitimate, and we had no intention of being violent.
5: After four days of unrest on the West Side, which came to be known as the blowouts, the mayor, school officials, and students met. Gonzalez's students presented a list of demands and wanted the social studies teacher fired.
4: The ones that were critical in my mind was the curriculum, having a curriculum that uh, represents us as well, that we're in that history, in that story, to have more Chicano teachers, counselors and administrators.
5: The superintendent of Denver Public Schools at the time agreed to change the curriculum and the teaching staff, but he didn't fire the teacher who insulted the students and moved him to another school instead. The protest at West helped spark what became known as El Movimiento, the Chicano movement. Just a few weeks later, the Crusade for Justice held the first-ever Youth Liberation Conference in Denver that drew 1,500 young Chicanos from across the country. In the year following, different Chicano youth groups formed and held anti-war demonstrations, walkouts in California, and other protests in the Southwest. Ramón de Castillo is a Chicano studies professor at Metro State. He says the actions in Denver had a lasting impact. The beginning of Chicano studies came from not just West, but also that youth conference. We've created a well-researched, methodologically sound discipline that will stand up to anybody, any other work in political science and sociology. We now have the scholarship and the scholars that do that. Nita Gonzalez never left activism. She ran Escuela Tlata Loco, an alternative K-12 through school born out of the movement, and she was recognized as a champion of change during the Obama administration. She says the way West High students stood up still sticks out in her mind today. It was like a wildfire that just started to consume, travel
4: across the state saying, we, we have a right to stand up. We have a right to live a life that we have justice and equality. And It's not going to happen because someone feels sorry for us. It is going to happen when we stand up, when we say, ya basta, no more. We're not doing this anymore.
5: Emmanuel Martinez is a successful artist with works across Denver, the Southwest, and even in the Smithsonian. He sees the legacy of those earlier protests at West today, even within his own family. His daughter leads the school, and his 17-year-old grandson, Isai Lopez, a West student, is part of Alfrente de Lucha, a group that teaches young people Chicano history and culture. Lopez says he wants people to be open-minded and educate themselves.
4: Whether it's watching more documentaries
0: about something or reading a book about history, just to get to know the world better, I guess. I think it's important to stand for something.
5: Emmanuel Martinez is working on an art installation for the school to recognize the protests. There will also be events this week at West to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the 1969 blowouts. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News.
0: The latest season of RuPaul's Drag Race on VH1 features a Denver drag queen.
2: I got the drag name Evie oddly because people kept calling my performances weird, so I wanted to name that was even odder than everybody else's.
0: Drag Race is the reality show in which men compete to see who can be the fiercest woman. They make their own costumes, do their own elaborate makeup, and lip sync for their lives. And Evie Oddly, a.k.a. Javon Bridges, joins us. Welcome to the program. Hello! How how, sh- <laughs> how shall I address you for this interview? Are you going with Evie or Javon?
2: Uh, Evie's easier. Okay. Honestly, the only people who call me Javon birthed me. <laughs> <The> birth... <laughs>
0: is is Evie an alter ego, a better version of yourself?
2: I wouldn't even say that Evie is necessarily an alter ego, as it is a transformation into a... Uh, the full acknowledgement of everything that I've worked for and uh, how I want my identity to be presented to the world.
0: How would you describe Evie?
2: Evie is a concept. It's just, uh, she's a platform in, in, in which I can express whatever I need to feel for the day where I can explore all of these different identities and characters. It's, She's she's how I relate to the human experience, and and take a step back and make a statement about it.
0: And what about her style? Describe her appearance for us.
2: <laughs> um, well, she's always going to be pretty out there for starters. Uh, a lot of drag is typically about female impersonation, and my drag is a, a lot more than that. I'm going to look more like a crazy cartoon character, or an alien, or or a giant blue person honestly what whatever I can do to shake people up
0: What is the wildest, most inspired look you've put together
2: The wildest, most inspired look well in uh in my house, we 're always making something crazy, so there's a new one every single month but i I pers- some of my favorites are the jellyfish look that uh just aired on Drag Race this past Thursday, just because it 's so insane. And then I've also got this trash gown look I made out of old fast food wrappers and stuff. Huh. <laughs>
0: was it all fast food you had eaten, or did friends contribute?
2: You know, it could have been mine if I had the foresight to save my trash that, that long, but thank God I just have lots of friends with really poor diets. <laughs> <laughs> Does,
0: will you describe the jellyfish look for us?
2: Yeah, the jellyfish look uh, was how I tackled the fringe runway assignment that was given to us and I felt like a lot of uh, the other competitors in the competition were going to take fringe literally and just wear like fringe outfits that we could see mm. so I've I I decided to take this jellyfish which is uh, a look I've I've turned a few times making it out of uh, trash bags and creating these jelly like tentacles and it's just a, a tall pink fantasy from head to toe with all of these tentacles blowing in the wind and my cartoony jellyfish head that like bobs up and down.
0: How did the judges receive it?
2: Um, they I, they didn't actually get to spend any time really talking about it. I, I will say that I clearly remember walking down the runway and seeing RuPaul's mouth like wide open, jaw on the floor, and nothing could ever make me happier.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a lot of your creations can be done on a shoestring budget. Is that true?
2: Um, That's definitely true. I mean, growing up, we we were never particularly uh, stable financially. I've always been kind of near the poverty line. (laughs) So getting into drag and for me, has never been about looking the most glamorous or the most expensive because that's never been something that was necessarily attainable for me. I've just always liked to work with the materials that I have around me. Before before drag, I was a fine artist and I painted on cardboard. So, <laughs>
0: Oh my goodness. How did you get into drag,
2: Evie Oddly? Um, I got into drag because I actually had trouble uh, garnering support, attention, any anything really for my art. I went to art school and was set up to be an artist in the real world. And But what I wasn't really set up for is how hard it is to get just your average Jill and Joe to to care about art enough to want to fund your art and to come out on a Friday night and go to a gallery instead of a club or a bar it was
0: just easier to get people places with alcohol. (laughs) Is that what I'm hearing?
2: (laughs) I mean, that's that's basically what the weekends are for. But yeah, I feel like drag is just a whole lot more engaging. So when when I discovered it myself, I knew that I could combine the art that I've always loved and really pushed for uh, in platform and in an interactive manner that people really seem to respond to
0: it's interesting i just went to the dior exhibition at the denver art museum and there was a a gown there that had been hand painted and i wonder Uh, if any of your your uh, painting skills literally make it into your outfits
2: yeah um they they do all the time uh Luckily, because I had such a long time at art school to learn all these different techniques and and kind of soak up uh the ability to try new things, I've I've always taken little tools and little skills I've learned in making almost every single outfit. Even even just starting at painting my face. When I paint my face, I'm taking all the same skills I learned about portraiture and it's just kinda cool that uh art skill wasn't or art school wasn't a waste for me. <laughs>
0: Uh, Evie Oddly, let's listen to your introduction on RuPaul's Drag Race.
2: I think what sets me apart from other queens is just my thought process. The way I, I tackle challenges in life is by going for the scrappiest, dirtiest, like most back road option and then making it work somehow,
0: <laughs> which gives <the> a <laughs> sense that you're resourceful. But I'm curious what what your drag weakness is. Like, what aspect of this are you bad at? Or are you still perfecting?
2: I mean, I'm still learning a lot, and there are a lot of there are a lot of skills that I'm not 100 percent refined yet. But an example, I, I ha- um, like I, I'd say, for one, I'm not good at. Being anything other than myself, so I can I can change my character to fit certain things, but I'm not I'm not particularly skilled at like let's say impersonations or like mm. or uh, free form situations where I'm really supposed to like be somebody else. <laughs>
0: well, I know that there's uh, a game, a, a competition in RuPaul's Drag Race where you have to impersonate someone famous. Who's, who, who do you come closest to doing well?
2: I mean, I've never, I've never really found anyone that I'm good at doing well. I can do caricatures, like very quick caricatures, of people, but none of them are even kind of close to who the person is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you're you're just gonna have to tune in to see uh, who I who I did if I make it that far in the competition.
0: How oh, you do? Yeah, right. You can't reveal, of course, what happens during this season. Okay. How do you think the Denver drag scene and the Colorado drag scene are doing?
2: Um, I have to admit that when I started, I was not impressed. A part of the reason I. I got into drag in the first place is I fell in love with this TV show and saw all the expression that was happening there. And then I didn't see that in the community around me. But since then, especially just within this last year, I see a lot of people striving to push their art, to challenge themselves, to take their drag to new places and new cities and ideas that are bigger than just uh, pleasing a local Denver crowd.
0: What's an example of what you've seen? on a stage Um, in Denver?
2: I mean, I've seen, it's actually bigger than the stage. I've seen people trying to produce YouTube content and reach out to audiences outside of us. I've seen a lot of girls um, really fine tune their perspective on drag instead of just being like, I am a drag queen and that's good enough.
0: (laughs) Before we go, can I run my uh, drag name by you if I were to do drag?
2: Oh yes, please.
0: Okay, it would be Miss Anthrope. Thrope, Miss no! like?
2: not a Miss Miss Okay, <laughs> does it does it meet your approval, Evie? It definitely does. Okay. You're you're obviously a highbrow queen. <laughs> I take
0: that. <laughs> That's Evie Oddly, the creation of Javon Bridges, although apparently only his parents refer to him that way, uh, from Denver competing on the current season of RuPaul's Drag Race. Show me what you get. Thanks for joining us for Colorado Matters. I'm Miss Anthrope. This is CPR News.